prepared, where the ships would have come in, where the Apostle Paul would have went in and out, where this letter would have come in. It would have come into this into this port, specifically from Patmos, because Patmos is, is out there in the waters. Here's a modern-day rendering of that same thing. You can see the road there that's going toward, toward the, the port. It was a very, very important city. In Acts 19, how, how, how significant was the city? In Acts 19... We're told that when the gospel comes, that only a portion of Ephesus comes to Christ. And whenever they came to Christ, they begin to burn their, their magic books and other things. And the amount of money that was calculated that they threw into the fire was 50,000 pieces of silver. Or 50,000 pieces of silver. A small portion of Ephesus gets saved. And those individuals that get saved have a big bonfire with their, with their pagan practices and it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Huge town, significant town because of place because of the port and also very very wealthy and that's the first church that is written to. And we already read Ephesus chapter 2, so I'm not going to read it to you again, but I am going to give you the outline. Here's the outline of the edict. There's only 7 verses that are here, but a lot is packed into those 7 verses. It's God's message to a loveless church. Now, I didn't say God's message to the loveless church of Ephesus because all of these letters in the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just to Ephesus, but the other six, and also to us today, and every church that has been, every church that will be. So this is God's message to a loveless church. And in verse 1, there's the, there's the church's messenger. Then the church's condition. Christ knows the deeds of His church. He knows their works. He knows what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And then He gives the cure at the end in verses 5 through through 7. There's the introduction in verse 1. Look at verse 1 if you would. There is, "...to the angel of the church of, of Ephesus." Now, it used to be that every Christmas present had a label on it. Or if you mail something, there is a to and a, and a from. How would you like to get a message to Timberlake Baptist Church from the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, if you got something like that, you'd probably think somebody's trying to play a trick on you. And if you got a package that was actually addressed like that, they would be trying to play a trick on you. But you do have a message to Timberlake Baptist Church from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the, the Bible that you're listening to right now, this, this very moment. How would you like it if you got a message addressed that way? If Jesus sent a specific message to Timberlake Baptist Church, he could evaluate us perfectly, he can see what we're doing well, what we're not doing well. We try to do that, try to do that on a yearly basis and improve. But God has perfect eyes and perfect ability. Well, how would you feel about that? We'd probably determine whether if, whether it brought... Anxiety or anticipation would, would probably depend on how well you thought that you were doing as far as Scripture was, was concerned. I would say if you're here this morning and you're, you're walking with the Lord and you have a clean conscience and you know you're right with God, you might be sitting there anticipating to hear what God would have to say. If there's sin in your life, there's things that you, that you refuse to repent of, you might not be too anxious to hear what the Lord has to say this morning. 
But here's a message that begins with a to and a from. It's to the angel of the church of, of Ephesus. The angel of the church of Ephesus in, in verse 1. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about who is the angel. Is this a literal angel? Did each church have an angel? Did was there a church? Was there an angel assigned to all seven of these churches? Are are this this word can can meet an angel or a messenger? So are they the messengers of the church? Is this the is this to the the lead elder who's communicating the message to the church at Ephesus, or is it? Or is the angel a, a, a symbol of the church personified to the angel of the church of, of, of Ephesus? Just said that the biblical word can mean can mean can mean either can mean a uh, a human messenger or it can also mean an angel. And I I personally think it's the lead elder of the church that's going to communicate. But what's more important, what matters is how the messenger is presented. Look at, look at what he says here. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, these things says he who holds the messengers, the seven stars, which we're told back at the end of chapter 1, that these are the seven angels, he who holds the angels, the messengers, in his hand. He is in the right hand of the one who speaks. And I think that's the emphasis the words of him who who holds these things says he who holds the seven stars it's it's the same idea he who holds or, or these things says or the words of him it's the same idea in the old testament of thus says the lord like in amos 1:6 the messenger of the church is under the authority of the one who is speaking and the one who is speaking is the one who says thus says the lord he's god the message is from the presiding and present Christ. He's the one who holds the messenger in his hand. He's the, he's the one who's presiding and, and he's the one who walks in the middle, in the midst of the, of the candlesticks. He's present in the midst of the, of the church. There, there are two participles that you'll find here. He, he holds. It means to hold authoritatively. The messengers are in his control and, and he walks. He's present. He's aware. And he wants to, the first thing he says to Ephesus is, is I have the messenger in my hand. They're under my control. This message is from me and I am present and, and I am, uh, I am aware. It's fascinating if you, if you look at, look at the progress of, of Christ among his churches in Revelation. And in the first 13, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, he's in the midst of his church. In verse 16, he holds them. He holds the churches in his hands. And no man will pluck them out of his hand. And now he walks among them. He's, he's, in their, he's in their midst. Christ is communicating to his church that I am present with you. And, and they need to know that because of the persecution and the difficulty that they're under. And they will need to know that because of the rest of the message. The rest of the message is going to be about the judgments and the, and the, and the overwhelming catastrophes that are going to come at the, at the hand of, uh, of, of Christ. He's walking among them. Look at verse 1. He walks in the midst 
of the seven golden lampstands. Now, why do I say that that's important? And how, how do you say that's presence? Well, in the midst. Well, it's got a little bit more significance than just he says he's in the midst. Walking among God's people, God walking amongst His people goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, doesn't it? He walks in the cool of the day with Adam and he no longer is able to walk with Adam because of of Adam's sin. Fellowship with God is broken. And then whenever God chooses a people Israel and they come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and they're finally made a nation, God delivers them, leads them out of Egypt through Moses and now God's going to live in the midst of His people. And in Leviticus, he says, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. There's significance there about presence. I will walk among you. God's presence will be amongst his people. And he's saying to the church, my presence is in the midst of the church. It's not in the midst of Ephesus as a city. It's, in, it's among you. I, I will walk, walk among you, church. And there's also the significance of relationship. I will be your God. And then there's transformation. You will be my people. You'll no longer be uncircumcised. You'll no longer be uncircumcised in heart. You'll no longer be like the world. You'll no longer be in sin. You'll be, you'll be my people. There's a distinction that God makes between human beings. There are those who are His and those who are not. There are those who are in the church. There are those who are outside of the church. There were those who are in Israel. And then there was... Everyone else besides that. It's the message of all of Scripture. Presence, relationship, and and transformation. God was separated from man in the garden because of sin. He creates this relationship by faith. Israel would worship Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, and they'd no longer be enemies. They would be God's people. But then what happens when they become God's people? They're transformed. You become like... Whatever or whoever you worship. You're transformed in the image of the one you worship. Isn't that the goal of salvation? You've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You're not like Christ. But God says that at the end of, of salvation, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal of redemption is you'll be made like the Lord Jesus. How does that happen? Your mind is renewed. And as your mind is renewed, you're transformed. As you hear the words of God and you obey the words of God, you become more and more like Jesus Christ. You become like whatever or whoever you worship. So who or what are you becoming like? If you would stand back and look at your life, who do you imitate? Who are you becoming like? Well, the answer to that, the way you figure out that question is look at your pursuits. Look at your desires. Look at your speech. Look at your action. Actions, do you see Christ in those things? Are you becoming more like Christ? Look back over the last year. Look back over the last five years. Look back over your life. Do you see that you're becoming more like God? It's exactly what Peter was saying when he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It means become like me, because I am who I am, and you are my people. Christ is reminding His church in this introduction about the relationship that He has. He knows and He can guide us to be conformed to His image. And so He gives a a diagnosis and also a cure. Look at verse 2. Here's the church's conditions. I know 
your works. I know your deeds, he says. Now, you would say, duh. Of course, God knows. So why is he telling them this? Well, there's a point here. He's saying, he's saying to them, this is not so much their, their individual uh, actions. It's the whole of their life. It's the overall manner. He's saying, I give an accurate uh, um, evaluation of the church. He knows. And God knows, doesn't He? He knows what no one else knows. And we're exposed before Him. And He sees the good and the bad. And He starts here with the good. And He, can, he commends them. He commends them for diligence. He commends them for doctrine, and He commends them for discernment. He says, I know your works, in verse 2, your labor, your patience. There's a positive, or there's an active and a passive part there. And that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You've been able to discern doctrinally that they're not who they say they are. He says, I know your, your toil, your labor, and your patience, or your endurance. And there's the active and passive side of, 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 walk, of the walk. And, and the church at Ephesus had definitely labored for the gospel. And they had endured a number of things, a lot of pressure. They labored for the gospel. I mean, Ephesus is significant, uh, if you look back at the church of Ephesus, it's the who's who uh, in ministry. The apostle Paul pastored the church, Timothy pastored the church, and even John, we believe, was the pastor of the church, the one who's writing Revelation. Acts 10 says that the church was a missions hub for the entire region. Now think, 250,000 people in all of this wealth and this significance, and there is a there's a, a church that's formed there, and it becomes a missions hub for the entire region. When Paul ministered there for about three years, the church was so effective, the book of Acts tells us that not just Ephesus heard the gospel, but all of Asia heard the gospel because of the Apostle Paul from Ephesus. It wasn't just a missions hub. It was a training center for pastors. Priscilla and Aquila first brought the gospel to to Ephesus, and Apollos. They found Apollos there, and he was trained, and then he was sent out. First Timothy was written to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, and Timothy was instructed to seek out men who were faithful in the church and then train them so that they could go out and teach, teach others. It was a missions hub, and it was a training center. Oh, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We're all about missions, and we're all about training. And these churches at this point trained men and they sent them out. And Titus was one of them. Crete is not very far away. And Titus is told to go there and do the same thing. They labored for the gospel. Many people came to Christ. Many people were trained. And when they did that, it stirred up a lot of strife. There was quite a riot in the city. And that picture that you saw earlier of the, of the theater is where is where the believers were, were brought whenever there was a silversmith. They got upset because the gospel was, was, was causing people to turn away from the business uh, of the temple there. And in the midst of all of that persecution, 
the church patiently endured. He says, I know your labor for the gospel, and I know your patient endurance. There's the active and passive side. They patiently endured. They, the, the church held the line. They, they didn't cave to the pressure of the society around them. And they were doctrinally sound, and because they were, they were discerning. Look at verse 2 again. After he praises them for their labor and their patience, he says, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. They're doctrinally sound, and they have the ability to discern. They don't just have a bunch of knowledge, they have the ability to apply it. Two of the most important and needed characteristics in the church today, I think, are found in that verse. To be doctrinally sound and to be discerning about doctrine. Verse 2 and verse 6 talks about not being able to bear evil and being able to test. They, they, they could bear up under the labor of the gospel and the pressure from the world, but they could not bear with false teaching or immorality. The church was able to discern moral and theological error. Can you do that? Can you discern moral error and theological error? Can you tell the truth from a lie? Can you tell the truth from error? Can can you identify sin? It's becoming more and more needed in our world today, isn't it? The only way that you'll ever be able to get to, to develop discernment, to where you can tell truth from error, or you can be able to, to sense exactly what sin is, 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 is if you make the Bible your sole authority and you study it hard. You'll be able to discern bad doctrine by knowing good doctrine. You don't need to go out and study what, what the Church of Scientology or the Jehovah's Witness believes. You just need to study the Bible, and whenever you understand what the Bible says, then, then you'll be able to figure out whenever false doctrine comes in, and that's exactly what you find here in the church of, of Ephesus. And, and you, may, you may not think that you need to know much depth. You leave that to the pastors, and you leave that to the guys at expositors, or, or wherever else it is, but you just live life for a while, and you'll figure out you need doctrine and you need discernment. Let an inexplicable tragedy come into your life and you try to make sense out of where is God or where was God in the midst of that and you'll figure out real fast you need to understand theology. You need to know it. Try to, try to deal with a question from, from, a, from a teenager, whether you're a teacher or whether you're a grandparent or a parent, where they come home and say someone in their, in their school or one of their friends says homosexuality is, is okay. Try explaining that to them and, 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 and going beyond just God says don't do it with, with, a, with a theological pipe stem rather than steel in your spine through the understanding of Scripture. And you'll figure out real fast that we need to be exactly like the Ephesians are praised for here. Persevere in labor as a church. Persevere under pressure and in the truth. But as you do that, don't lose your devotion to God. And other people. Look at how he confronts them here. He confronts them. He praises them. And then he confronts them. Verse 3, you have persevered and have patience. He's just repeating that. 
And you've labored and you did all this for my name's sake. They weren't doing this for the wrong reasons. They were doing this for my name's sake. And you've not become weary. You, you've continued to do that. In verse 4, Nevertheless, therefore, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Your, your first love, you've left. It's, it's emphatic in the Greek. The church was laboring. They were absolutely orthodox. They had the ability to tell whether other people were orthodox. But they'd allowed their hearts to leak out all of the love of God, which oiled all of that orthodoxy and which filled them with the devotion and, and love for God and for, for the other people that were in Ephesus and the people that they, were, that they were testing. Robert Mount said, Every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. The desire for sound teaching and diligent testing to root out the imposters had a deadening effect on the church. And it'll have a deadening effect on you if you're not careful. One of the, thing, the challenges that, that, that you will face if you're active in your church and you're discipling people or if you're in ministry or wherever it is, is when you begin to deal with sin and you begin to deal with sinful people, we're all cynical, uh, we're all sinful, it can make you cynical. <laughs> you really can. I mean, when you turn on the TV and you listen to a politician, what do you think? Why, why, why? I don't care who it is. You say, I've heard that dog and pony show before, and I'm just not buying it. And there was probably a point when you listened to somebody and you went, yeah, yeah, I mean, I want to be a part of that. I want to do that. And now you're just like, you know, okay, well, I hope it happens, but, but whatever. That's what's happening in the church at Ephesus, and that's what can happen with, with you. If you get so focused... On doing it right, you can forget the reason that you're doing it to begin with. Which is for love of God and people. And when that happens, you abandon this fresh, unsuspicious, fearless love that you once had for God and you shared with others. True love of God involves fervent hate or what counterfeits or distorts the truth, but it doesn't lack a desire to see the benefits of salvation extended to others, even those who counterfeit and even those who distort the truth. We should love the world like God does, in the sense that God desires the benefits of salvation to be extended to the world, but we should hate the enemies of God like David did in Psalm 139. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And the church at Ephesus had allowed too much of that side of the equation. They allowed coldness and dryness to creep over their heart. Now I want you to notice that the church had not, had not walked away from the faith. They'd not stopped serving. They'd not stopped persevering. They were very adept in the truth. They could smell error a mile away, and yet they were loveless and therefore lifeless. And he rebukes them to the point that he says, you will cease to be a church. 
And what's the lesson? The lesson is good works and pure doctrine are not adequate substitutes for a rich relationship with God. Notice what he says here in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It's the first love. It's the, it's the love that you experienced initially whenever you, whenever you came to Christ and you just knew you were forgiven and clean. Can you remember back to that moment? Maybe you were a child. Maybe you were young. Can you remember a moment in your life when you understood the benefits of, of knowing Jesus? You, you, you knew your sins were forgiven. You knew you were cleansed. I mean, it's that moment you just loved God and you loved everybody. You were clumsy. You, you, didn't, you didn't know much of anything. You stumbled over the right way to do things. But you loved Jesus. You remember those days? That's what God is calling the church at Ephesus back to. And I think the temptation is to think truth and love are mutually exclusive. Like, like you either have to be loving and not truth-filled, or truth-filled and not loving. Even as you listen to me this morning, and, and I'm calling you to remember, just like God's calling Ephesus, remember what it felt like. Whenever you just love God and love people, and you didn't have to know all this stuff, and you didn't have to be discerning because you didn't have the ability to be discerning. And you go, yes. I mean, yes, that's exactly what I want. What I want. I become cold. I become dry. I've lost that. I want that. And then, and then it's natural to conclude, well, the, the problem must be that I got too legalistic or I got too wrapped up in church or serving or studying the Bible. I need to stop focusing so much on truth and I need to focus on love and people. That's not what God says here. In fact, He's going to rebuke Thyatira and Pergamon for doing that very thing. God says don't throw off diligence and doctrine and discernment. He says make sure you, ha- you add love to those things. Make sure that love is the fuel that, that causes those things to, to function. Love for God and others is the most distinctive mark of a Christian. By this, all men will know that you are my followers, you are my disciples, if you love one another. And love is Christ in you, because God is love. Love is the motivation for serving and giving and caring. Love is the oil for relationships between sinners. Love is the wet blanket that extinguishes the flames of offense or irritation. What does love look like? It gives. You, you, you can give and not love, but you cannot love and not give. It dies. It dies to self when everything else wants self to be exalted or vindicated or protected. It dies to wants and desires. It stumbles. It stoops. Christ's love condescends to us. He came to us. He, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, we reach down to others. It initiates. It says, I'm sorry first. It, it seeks reconciliation first. It doesn't just, just move if the other person moves. Aren't you glad that God moved first right when you were sitting there with your arms crossed doing what you were doing? It provides what we need the most for God so loved the world that He gave. It seeks. Love risks. It risks your life so that you may gain His. It, it thinks and says and does good. Love is not an emotion. It bears fruit, 
And that's why you can't separate it from laboring and persevering and discerning. But don't let the fresh glow of the love for God and others to fade. But if it has, don't worry. Jesus provides a cure. You get what he says here in verse 5. He's the solution given. Three commands. Remember, repent, and do. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. First love, first works. He says, let your mind continually go back to the earlier days. That's the remember. It's, a, it's in the present tense. Keep on remembering the gospel. Even as you discern and, and you work, remember. Have you ever just been going about your day or about your life, see a picture or hear a song? And remember something and emotions just flood your heart. I mean, we have little memorials. We, we hang Christmas ornaments, ornaments with First Christmas. It's one of the ones that people like to look at whenever they come to, to our house. I didn't have a beard and lots of hair. Tracy and I were like, I don't know, 16, 18, somewhere around in there. And I just, ah, I remember that. Memory can be a powerful thing. Luke fifteen seventeen through 18, the prodigal son remembers. He does exactly what Jesus commands Ephesus here. It says he came to his senses, and when he remembered that his father's servants had way more to eat, they were cared for. And so he gets up, and remembering, he repents, he returns. And that's what he says here. Remember, therefore, from when you followed, and repent. This is not in the present tense. This is in the aorist. It, it's a word that means a decisive break. It means a, it means a point in which this happened. He says, bear in mind the loving relationship with the Lord you once enjoyed. Remember that. And then make a clean break from your present manner of life. Make a clean break from your deadness. Make a clean break from, from your lovelessness. And to repent means to take an active step. It's a result of an action that comes from a change of thinking. So the change of thinking is the remembering. And the repentance is, is, a, is a decisive break. And then you do. You change the way that, that you live. And there is a beautiful picture of repentance. When you repent of sin, you realize that it is sin, and then you stop it. We love to, to, to make hard things softer. We don't like calling it a graveyard. We like calling it the memorial garden, right? We don't call things sin. We call them, we call them addictions. Or when we talk about the battle of, of, of dealing with things, we talk about, I have a struggle. And we like to use the word, we struggle with sin. I struggle with that. Well, if what you mean by struggling with that means is that, that you're engaged in a fight to the death, then praise God, struggle with it. But more than likely what people, people mean is, I'm afraid, is, is at times an, an excuse. I've used it as an excuse, and I'm really struggling with that. I'm struggling with immorality, or I'm, I'm struggling with anger. Well, stop it. Stop struggling with it. Make a decisive break. No one's forcing you or me to put myself in those positions that make it such a battle or make it such a struggle. Repent means to flee, it means to stop, it means to cease, it means to turn. You kill and you destroy the works of darkness. 
You don't continue to dabble in it. You don't even want to get close to it. Repentance is a radical redirection of one's entire life. And that's what he says. Remember, there's the change of mind. Oh, I remember the first love. And so there's a decisive break. There's a radical redirection of my life. And then I do the first works. And that's where the change of action comes in. Someone who's truly repented will bear fruit. Your life is different. You say you know Jesus Christ and you're not becoming like Christ and your life's not different. I question whether you truly know Jesus Christ. And not just me, but the Bible does. And if you'll not repent, God will eventually bring consequences. Look at what he says here. Remember, repent, and do the first works at the second part of verse 5, or else I will come to you quickly. And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's a consequence that he warns. He warns the church. They can't keep just being orthodox. They can't keep just persevering. They can't keep just discerning. If they will not remember and repent and bring love for God and people back into their life, then he says, I will snuff you out. I will come and remove the lampstand from its, from its place. Now think about that message in the context of the Revelation. Because they got the whole letter. They didn't just get these seven little verses to Ephesus. They got the whole letter. And they hear that and they read the rest of Revelation. I'm going to treat you not like a church any longer. I'm going to treat you like apostate Israel. <laughs> or the world. They would be visited by Christ, not in the second coming but His presence would extinguish their flame. You know how gracious God is. I mean, just read the Old Testament. Look at how many times God calls Israel over and over. How many times Israel sins. How many times they walk away. I mean, He leads them out of Exodus. They do all of the plagues that that are there. The Passover, the blood on the door. He leads them out. The Egyptians give them gold for their travels. The Red Sea is parted. They come on the other side of the Red Sea. They sing praises to God. Moses goes to get the law of God. And then they are down in the middle of, of the desert turning to the gods of, of Egypt. And God still is gracious and still long-suffering. But of all of God's grace and all of God's long-suffering nature, He has a limit. There's a limit. Oh, it's, 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 it's way more than your limit or my limit. It's actually a limit that we have a hard time grasping, which is why Jesus says to Peter, when Peter says, She'll... I forgive them not three times like the Jews say, seven times. And Jesus says, no, Peter, seven times 70. 490 times. And it's not just a specific number. It's like way beyond what human beings forgive. But even God has a limit. And if you refuse to hear and refuse to repent, then at some point the axe will fall. Why let that happen? Why let that happen? Especially whenever there's this promise made. 
In verse 6, he just reminds them again about how it's good to hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Hate evil. Hate evil men. Hate their deeds. Take the gospel to those evil men so they can become good men in Jesus. And look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, here's the promise, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There's a beautiful picture promised here. To those who overcome, overcoming in Christ, one of the themes of Revelation, the church will overcome, they will persevere. They will make it because Christ is their is their is the one who's who's been to death and come out the other side. He's the living one who's died but is alive forevermore, and and he's in their midst. Those who overcome, Christ has granted free access to the tree of life in paradise. You know the last time the tree of life is mentioned or pictured in the Bible. Tree of Life is mentioned at the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. It's mentioned in Genesis 3.22. After the fall, man, because of his sin, there's a wall, there's a barrier put up between him and, and the Tree of Life, and there's a flaming sword that's there. The last time you see the Tree of Life, there's a flaming sword protecting it. And the next time, if you go to the very end of the Bible, that you'll see the Tree of Life, you're in Revelation 22.2, and that's in the midst of the new, of Jer- new Jerusalem. And people are freely partaking of the tree of life. To him who overcomes, I will give access to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Do you hear the promise? Your sins separate you from God and His good gifts. But Christ has conquered sin, death, and hell in the grave, and He can remove the flaming sword between you and God. And you can face God's flaming sword, or you can face God's cross, where He turned that very sword on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in your place. And if you want to overcome, it will be through Jesus and Him alone. Through Jesus, you have free access to God, and you have free access to paradise, and you have free access to all of the benefits. Don't you bow your heads. Do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you become his follower? Have you done what, what you've heard in, in the message today? Have you seen your sin for what it is? Have you, has your mind been changed about who God is and who you are? Have you turned from that? Have you made a decisive break from sin to God? Have you embraced what Jesus has said about himself and about you? Have you, have you trusted in him? Do you know it? If not, be an overcomer. Come to Jesus, and He'll give you access.
the things that you have no access to outside of. Your sin has separated you from God. But Jesus paid your sin debt. And God writes this letter to you. It's a love letter. What about you, Christian? Do you love the truth? Do you love it more than being right? Well, that's a test. You say, I love the truth, but do you love the truth more than being right? Do you approach the Bible and truth not to prove what you already believe, but you just want to submit to whatever it says? Do you love the truth enough to admit when you're wrong? Do you love the truth enough to say, I don't know? Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin to the point you love it more than your comfort? You're willing to flee from it. You're willing to make radical changes in your life. Unplug the TV, the internet, the whatever it is. And if you love truth and hate sin, do you love God? Do you love others? Do you, is the oil there? Is the devotion there that you once had whenever all you had to cling to was Jesus? If not, remember and repent and do the first works. Do the works of being a lover of God and man. Father, as we come before you, what a, what a powerful message, how you have sanctified my heart. Father, I pray for every person here that's outside of Christ that, that you would help them see, that you would help them to believe. Lord, they don't have to know a fancy formula. They just have to be willing to say, Lord, I've made a mess of myself and, and I believe what, what you're saying and, and I need help. And, and I turn from my old way and, and I turn to you. And, and Lord, me or anyone else here, any of the other pastors would be willing to help them to see that. Father, for us as Christians, help us not to give up truth or be discerning, but help us not to sacrifice love for you and love for others on the altar of being right and doing right. Will you tell us to do both? In Jesus' name, amen.